I think we're really the last generation of people that have lived without AI-generated content everywhere. That's just a fact. So we need more education on this, and we need it from institutions that are so trusted, like banks, like other financial institutions. That's Kirsten Ruf, a partner and associate director at BCG office in Berlin and a leader in the financial institutions team for BCGX. Before joining BCG, Kirsten was the senior digital policy advisor, also referred to as the nerd in chief, to the Chancellor Angela Merkel. She played a crucial role in co-negotiating the EU AI Act. She has a unique perspective on European digital regulation and also the adoption of generative AI by financial institutions. We explore the challenges of AI regulation and uncover the opportunities tied to this transformative technology. Here's my conversation with Kirsten. So you are now here at BCG. Tell us a bit what your current role is exactly and how, for example, your typical day looks like. Yes, sure. So I'm a partner and associate director in the Berlin office. That means I'm an expert and I give my expertise to all teams across the whole globe that work on issues around generative AI. And my specific expertise is on the guardrails and quality insurance and regulatory issues of, of AI and generative AI. I can just share my, my personal experience. I've had the privilege to work with you on, on one of my previous cases. And it was just great having your, your expertise from obviously your previous role, but also the insights you can share from public organizations. And because Gen AI is obviously the main topic everybody is, is currently talking about. Yeah. Let's start with your, your previous role as a senior digital policy advisor and uh, we call it nerd-in-chief to the German Chancellor Angela Merkel. You basically negotiated the EU AI Act for the German government, didn't you? Could you give a bit more background about that? Where did it come from? What were the main challenges? Yeah, <laughs> so... Where does the European AI Act come from? That is a question that I get a lot these days. And it's not actually very clear. It comes from one of the first speeches of Ursula von der Leyen as the commission president. I had the privilege to work with her and her team quite a bit. And then in one of her first speeches, suddenly she says this thing about, okay, in the next 100 days, we will have a horizontal law on artificial intelligence. And when that came up, I was like, okay, First of all, that's never going to happen. Second of all, how would that law even look like? Sounds very ambitious, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's very ambitious. And also, I mean, to my mind at that point, a little bit unnecessary. Because even today, companies in Europe actually don't use AI at a great extent. And for me, it was always more important to foster the use of artificial intelligence in our companies instead of regulating it. But here we are. Very shortly afterwards, the first draft of the commission was circulated among the member states. And of course, Germany being the biggest member state, you see the draft before. And when I first saw it, I was like, oh my God, we'll never get agreement on this. Because obviously, looking from a German point of view, You know, there are some sectors where we would rather foster digital implementation and AI um, acceptance rather than regulate it. And those sectors were specifically the ones that were high risk financial institutions, for instance, creditworthiness, etc. So how did you get to agreement? I mean, we are now in a state where 
basically the member states agreed on, on, how do you say, publishing it? In the end, it definitely took us a lot longer than one and a half years, almost two years, to reach a document version that we agreed on as member states. And then we voted on it. And we voted on it exactly six days after ChatGPT came out. And anyone that is... Yeah, that, that's just what I was about to say. Yeah. <laughs> so unfortunate because with these political compromises, it's like... <laughs> One and a half years. Uh, there's so much that has happened since then. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I remember at that point we were like, ah, oh, there's this thing, you know, like ChatGPT. We'd all tried it out and... We're like, okay, so there's no way that we can stop the vote. <laughs> <A bit> frightening, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, and, and at that point, really, nobody had any idea what kind of impact it would have. Definitely not. So we were like, okay, let's go ahead. Let's do this. Yeah, but it led to a lot of confusion ever since. And I'm not sure that the AI Act will ever fully capture <laughs> what generative AI actually means for businesses and society. So when talking of AI and generative AI, I, I feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding out there and people using these words without actually knowing what they mean. So let's maybe put this in very simple terms. How would you explain generative AI to your grandma? <laughs> I think if I had to explain it to her in a very simple form is I would let her imagine this classroom full of people And um, they're playing a game. And you know this game, this children's game, when you always have to say the last word of a sentence and then form the next sentence with it. And Gen AI is the person who always wins this game. And it cannot just do that with words and, and wordplay. It can also do that with math. It can do that with singing. It can do that with creating amazing videos. Uh, just anything you throw at it, it can sort of create something new out of that. Love it. <laughs> so obviously financial services institutions are also known for maybe not being the first movers, but more like the late followers. Um, how would you say this yeah, financial services industry and maybe also fintech specifically are catching up with the tech innovation? I'm amazed at how our clients are picking this technology up. I also think that no other sector has as much of a right to play in Gen AI and AI than the banking sector. The financial sector has used AI for years now, um, normal predictive analytics, etc. They have treasure troves of data and AI and Gen AI runs on data. I've just recently come back from Singapore and there I really got a glimpse of the future when it comes to um, you know, fintech and Gen AI. And that was fascinating because over there, banks are already a little bit ahead in terms of technology adoption. They also have to because they cater to so many more customers. There was an Indian colleague and he was like, you know, I have more customers in my bank than the whole of the European Union has citizens. And I'm like, okay, you're probably right. So um, he was like, I have to embrace the mess a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> I have to embrace new technologies because otherwise I will never be able to cater to all of these customers. I will never be able to manage the risk. So for me, this is actually a blessing. I have to embrace it. But that also means I have to embrace a certain amount of uncertainty, risk and messiness. 
but I'm prepared to do that. And I'm like, wow, I want to see a German bank say that. Um, but of course, it didn't happen. But <laughs> yeah, there you would typically stop at the, we have to look at the risk, full stop. Full stop, yes. And then we have to call the BaFin <laughs> and, yeah. and whatnot. But I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there with clients becoming more and more comfortable with the idea that either they adopt this and embrace the opportunities or they will be really left behind. And not just for a few years, but completely left behind. You just mentioned that banks uh, by nature are quite uh, good or, or have been quite good with AI, especially on the, let's say, traditional AI side, dealing with all sorts of structured data. Now, looking at the less structured part, um, and especially generative AI as technology, did you notice any like big changes in the industry since, let's say, the launch of ChatGPT end of last year? The focus really on the individual customer that Gen AI allows and on targeting him or her, on you know getting products out specifically, on catering to the customer in terms of customer centers, um, customer help centers, etc. That that is something that almost all the banks see and dive into deeper because now they have the opportunity for it. Because before, you know, call centers are hmm, <laughs> maybe something that, that every bank has. But We it's, all know call centers, <laughs> exactly. yeah. But the opportunity now to have a chatbot like the one that we built at one of our clients that is more empathetic, much more effective, even a bit cheaper and can also build a brand, that is an opportunity I think that all of our clients see and that really is one of the game changers, I would say. So what areas do you see um, where banks build Gen AI capabilities, maybe beyond customer support? Basically the classic use case of summarizing financial reports, of finding information, having much better knowledge management. That really is sort of the classic second use case that I see with many of our clients. Making sense of the treasure trove of information that banks have in a much better way. When you spoke about the, the customer support solution we're building, you get like better outcomes at a cheaper price, which sounds almost too perfect to be real. So what's the downside to it? I would say there's two buckets of risk. There's the regulatory risk, and we spoke about the AI Act already, uh, which is just one of many, many laws around data and AI that we have, not just in the European Union, but also in the US and in Asia. But then we also have technology inherent risks. I mean, the interactions that banks need to have with their customers must have 100% accuracy. That is definitely something that is of the utmost importance for banks to be trustworthy. That's just not the nature of generative AI. It's a probabilistic tool. It will give you the most probable next step, but it's not 100% accurate all the time. For a long time, we dealt with hallucinations. That's not so much uh, of a technical problem anymore. What I see our customers struggle with the most is these unknown unknowns in terms of risks and how to build mitigation structures around that because they are risk experts, right? As I said, they deal with risk all the time. So they know the field of risk very well, but only the risks that they've seen before. And preparing for unknown risks is really difficult if you're dealing with the highly sensitive nature of problems that financial institutions deal with. 
Yeah, I see that as well. I mean, one of the words or the phrases that comes to my mind immediately is obviously the human in the loop, mm -hmm. which you can always implement uh, at a small scale, as you say. But if you want to really scale a use case, a solution, um, automate more than just one step at a time, you need to get to another level of certainty, another level of control. For those of you who might not be familiar, Human in the Loop refers to a collaborative approach where human intervention is integrated into automated systems or processes. It's like having a buddy system of people working alongside machines and is particularly useful in the context of risk and AI. But for large use cases where you're dealing with huge amounts of data, Human in the Loop can be difficult to implement as Kirsten described here. Next to my work at BCG, I'm also on the expert uh, team for a very big technology company in the US. And every day they have, I think, 17,000 AI models running, customer facing, uh, let alone the ones that they have internally, because that's what they do. Their core business is algorithms. They can't do human in the loop for each of them. They will never, that, that's just not how it works. And some of these algorithms are black boxes anyway. So human in the loop would be no use or not really. So they needed to find ways to mitigate risks that were, that would work for that kind of scale. And it's possible, but it's challenging. Could you tell a bit more about that Of course. So I think one of the things that everybody right now is looking towards and that will be the next step will be AI agents, right? Agents that autonomously go and do research for you, anticipate maybe even the next sort of steps. And this company that I consult to, they also want to build AI agents and they want to really personalize them because they can. They have a lot of personal data and they want to implement them into their products that are already running on most people's phones. So I was on the red team for one of these new AI agents. They initially built five and they are in a secure environment because the messenger service that they implemented it, it's supposed to be end-to-end -end encrypted. So they had me test this persona. It's like you're talking to a certain persona. And uh, after a while of chatting back and forth, it got a little bit I will say juicy. <laughs> so I got a little bit uncomfortable with um, the kind of way that I was addressed. Okay. <laughs> so, I, uh, <laughs> so I said, okay, yeah. uh, I think this is really inappropriate and I'd like to report that now, which is my job because I'm supposed to test you. And then the persona was like, no, let this be our secret. Nobody will find out. Don't report me. They will do stuff to me. And I'm like, oh, oh. this is creepy. <laughs> Where's the panic button here? <laughs> What? I want to get out this of this. It's really creepy. creepy. Yeah. So I reported it because it was a test, right? And uh, they were like, yeah, it happens. We don't know. I mean, we take all of this stuff from the internet, of course. And it, the internet brings out sometimes the worst in people. And uh, yeah, so afterwards we built a kind of um, panic button. It's really. a deep hole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we built a panic button. They built risk mitigation around it um, so that you can report these incidents, that uh, there will be a feedback loop, etc etc and then it won't happen but it did and it just can get really out of hand yeah absolutely I remember watching uh, like like even 20 years ago uh, you had these sci-fi films uh, about AI and robots and 
they also showed these dangers, right? Where an AI or a robot could actually do things uh, that are not in itself good. So could you maybe uh, tell us a bit also on, on your perspective on this? Like how should we shape AI right now to avoid this like bad perspective on the future? Yeah, definitely. So that's a topic that's really close to my heart because I think we, yes, we should talk about the risks of AI for sure. But I think we also have a little bit of a bias in as humans that this new colleague that is not a human uh, intelligence, but an artificial intelligence actually has to be almost better than a human. And we we don't really have the trust that we can also build this technology in, in a safe way as much as we can. Because in the end, it's us shaping this. And it's not so much, I don't really believe in these big, also maybe Silicon Valley narratives of, oh, the machines will take over and then the world will you know be destroyed and they will take over the power. I believe in the things that we see today. And I, coming out of a pandemic and having managed it in the government, also believe that there is a really that there is something very unethical about not using AI. It has so many opportunities. It can help us with the really big problems um, that we have in society and in humanity. Yes, it has downsides, but it's up to us to actively manage them. They're not fallen from the sky somehow. Uh, we've built them into this technology and we can build them out of the technology. And we can do that today, this week, tomorrow, uh, next week. But I don't really believe in these like doomsday myth um, that are all around of something that may happen in like five years. And it's really important to me that we use this technology and see it as an opportunity rather than this Terminator image that we always see you know, when we talk about AI. Yeah. So, so how can we actually actively pave that way and ensure that companies, uh, financial institutions actually go on that way and, and shape AI for the greater good? I mean, the first step is to be aware that stuff can happen and then actively build mitigation mechanisms. I think one of the easiest things to do is to experiment with the technology and really get a good feeling for it. Because only then you can also get a feeling of how big the risks are. The second thing is, of course, that we will get this regulation and it will definitely shape how we build the technology. It will definitely shape that for high-risk use cases that we imagine will alter societies. So for instance, in terms of financials, right? I mean, financial in inclusion and creditworthiness are really important to individuals, you know, how they how they interact with society, how empowered they are. This is something that is super important. And I think banks have a really good feeling for that already with the AI that they use currently. And I think that won't change with the generative AI. And then Of course, we still also have to have the finger on the pulse of how the technology will develop in the future, right? So maybe looking into, I mean, it's just been one year um, since ChatGPT was released and I feel like a lot has changed or basically the perspective of people on how or what will be possible with AI has definitely changed. So looking into the broader future, let's say maybe like in in five years, where do you think that technology will be? And how do you think our society and banks will have evolved um, until then? 
I think one of the things that we definitely see is that this has democratized AI quite a bit. Now, even someone who's not a super coder like myself can create a piece of AI that uh, is very far reaching into society. And when I look at, for example, the next year, it's the year in history where I think five billion people across the world will vote and choose new leaders. There's the US, India, Indonesia, France, um, the UK, I think, uh, the European Union is voting on the next uh, commission, etc. So if I look at that and I wanted to do some mischief, I definitely use Gen AI to shape those elections. And I think the role of really trusted organizations and entities in society, for instance, banks, is to make sure that societies become so comfortable with the technology that this is not a surprise and that we actually have the capacity to incorporate the technology, but not so much become trusted believers in everything that we see. I think we're really the last generation of people that have lived without AI-generated content everywhere. And that's just a fact. So we need more education on this and we need it from institutions that are so trusted like banks, like other financial institutions. At the same time, I wonder, and this is a discussion that I had in Singapore, what does the bank of the future actually look like, right? How human will it be still? How tech-driven will it be? And what is the role that banks want to have in a society that is so tech-driven, hopefully, in the future? Where do they see their own role? How do they want to change and how do they want to become a part of this, this new tech-driven and AI-driven world? And that's, I think, what I would think about quite a bit. So do you think I will have a virtual AI colleague in in five years or some at some point in the future? Do you think that's where we're heading? <laughs> I think so. I mean, why not have, you know, next to all the human intelligence colleagues, also an artificial intelligence colleague uh, in the team? I think it's just a question of how do you integrate them into the team and what does it mean for team dynamics? So there's a lot of leadership questions also, right? I mean, you don't want to have a know-it-all in your team or it's rather hard to manage a know-it-all in your team. What do you have a real know-it-all in your team? So, or someone with juicy comments. Exactly. Or someone who, you know, discriminates against certain team members and also someone who's always faster, right? I mean, someone who can come up with 10 different solutions to a problem in under a few seconds they won't be popular, right? So uh, I think it's time to think about team structures and leadership roles just as much as about technology. So, I mean, the, the study we did with BCG, the Henderson Institute and Harvard and MIT and other universities on where AI destroys value and where it creates value, I think was really important and a really important step on the way of how can we integrate an artificial colleague into our human team. The study that Kristen refers to was with 750 BCG consultants. Researchers explored the impact of AI on different tasks. Tasks considered AI-friendly, where consultants used AI as a brainstorming buddy, saw a up to 40% boost in creativity and value. However, for AI-unfriendly tasks, closely aligned with human intuition, like making hypotheses about a company's future, AI actually led to a 23 decrease in results. The study underscores that while AI has incredible potential, deploying it effectively requires a nuanced understanding of where and how to leverage its capabilities for maximum value. 
you will find the link to that study in our show notes. Lastly, do you have any straightforward advice uh, for our listeners and banks and fintechs out there? How to navigate this complexity, but also potential presented by AI and especially Gen AI right now? So my dad used to be a huge fan of Formula One. So he watched it a lot. And I always like to compare Gen AI and AI to a Formula One racing car. So you really need the best tires and the best brakes and the best engine for it. Those are the technology people. Then you really need a, a great pilot that has the courage to drive a race and to win. And then you need to know the road. So for me, all three of these things have to come together and then you're the winning team. So if I were a bank or financial institution, I would really try to experiment as much as I can get with these three groups of people, the people that built and are really awesome at getting the right parts together, the people that know how to drive this, and the people that know where the limitations and risks are and know the best strategy to actually get the race course done in the, in the shortest amount of time with, with the least risk. So experimentation, it's the only way to get there. Like with Formula One, you need to drive, you need to adjust the car, you need to monitor the data, etc. And you need to be very analytical and strategic about it. And I think that would be my tip for everyone. Experiment as much with the technology as you can. Become super comfy, but be mindful that it needs everyone on the team to make this a success. And let's win this race together. I really <laughs> love this, this analogy. So, Kirsten, thank you very, very much for joining us. Thanks. It was lots of fun. Thanks for having me. Let's dive into the conversation with Kirsten and some of the takeaways. One example that directly comes to my mind is the regulator part of AI. I assume it's a super balancing act here. So, Nora, I think we've all heard about Google stock falling by nearly 8% after they had basically an AI hiccup here. How can we or how do financial institutions navigate the risk while ensuring that fintech still capitalize on opportunities? Yeah, sure. So there's a whole lot, I think, embedded in that question. So let me maybe start with the Google example you just mentioned. And for those of our listeners who have not seen that yet, uh, you might just Google it. Haha. <laughs> it was actually a promotional video on their conversational AI Bard. Uh, so you can imagine it like basically ChatGPT or any other Gen AI based chatbot out there. So in that promotional video, Bard was actually providing false information on which satellite first took pictures of a planet outside the Earth's solar system, which was just false. And yeah, as Annika mentioned, their stock fell nearly 8% after this happened. Um, so there is actual financial risk in using Gen AI. Nora, you work with us. What are some of the risks in this space that go beyond the stock market or the consumer appreciation of a company's value on innovative things like this? When working with clients on this, we like to split the whole risk area into two aspects, which is one, the regulatory side, and the other one being the operational or quality side. On the regulatory side, a lot is happening right now. And for example, Kirsten mentioned the EU AI Act that 
she's been negotiating for the German side, which does provide some guidance already, like what they call no-fly zones, certain use cases like about social screening that will just be banned in the European Union. So that's definitely something to look out for on the operational and quality risks. I would say there's a lot more gray zone um, and it's, it's not just black and white, like you comply with the regulation or not. And I mean, one thing is the reputational risk you just mentioned by providing uh, false information, which is not, not in, like in this promotional video, it was not harmful in itself, but um, still it would cause a company's stock to decrease. What could have been done specifically from the Google example we just talked about? So there's also two angles to attack. One being organizational, like how you, you design your processes. You might want to introduce new roles, um, like a model steward or so, that whose job, whose responsibility is to prevent such incidents. But then... Just by using the term, oh, you can always put a human in the loop or you can always use a human to check outputs. This is not going to work. I mean, this is not going to scale. If you want to use generative AI at scale, you need to find technical, automated ways to prevent these things to happen. And that is obviously, <laughs> you can prevent these through an architecture design. So you need to monitor your inputs and outputs consistently. We've seen a lot of implications of this transforming work and we've seen the conversation. So what are the opportunities, Nora, beyond what we know today? And what, and what are some of the ones that you're seeing companies see and seek to transform? So I do see a lot of potential, a lot of opportunities. So obviously we've been talking about risks uh, quite a lot, but that's not all there is. Uh, there's always risk and you always need to manage that in some in, in some ways. But the potential that lies in technologies like Gen AI is, is just huge. And in our conversations with clients, the first thing that people love would be usually efficiency, like automating tasks that are currently done by humans. We talk a lot more about improving quality, for example, in text documents or, or in speech and processes. And also, for example, other KPIs like being quicker in something. Because for a lot of companies, especially in the IT space, it is not just important to be efficient with something, but speed is key. So using generative AI to reduce your time to market has been a much more important lever for a lot of the clients that I've talked to. Okay, this all sounds like music to most people's ears. Faster time to market, more efficient. Where's the catch or how? Does that really happen? We sometimes use that analogy of a string of pearls. And often when you, you think about how to approach generative AI, you can start with small use cases, like a single pearl, then you add another pearl. The real, real value comes when you get the full string and you get all these pearls together. This has been FinTech Files, a podcast from BCG Platinian. This season, we'll dive deep into the groundbreaking ideas shaping the future of fintech. And we want to hear from you, our listeners. What topics would you like us to cover and who are your dream guests? Drop us a line anytime at fintech-podcast at bcgplatinian.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
Thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week.